Listener Production. This is Crafita Happy, and I am your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher, and of course, author of the Crappita Happy books. In this show, I bring you conversations with interesting, inspiring, intelligent people who are experts in their field and who have something of value to share that will help you feel less crappy and more happy. Today, I am bringing you my second of two conversations with Dr. Kristen Neff. Kristen Neff is an Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas, and she is a world-leading pioneer in the area of self-compassion research. Last week, we chatted about all things self-compassion, including her research, the benefits of self-compassion, the scale that she developed to measure it, which you can find at her website, and how she has applied this in her own life. I asked Dr. Neff if she would come back and have a second conversation with me specifically on the topic of fierce self-compassion, because that is the title of her most recent book. And I was really intrigued to understand the difference between fierce self-compassion and kind of regular self-compassion. In this conversation, she explains to me how she was motivated to write this book upon learning that a person she had long respected and supported turned out to be a sexual predator. She describes how important and how necessary these self-compassion practices can be when we are standing up for what's right, setting boundaries and fighting for justice. Just as self-compassion can be tender, it's not just tender. It can also be very, very fierce and sometimes that's what we need. So without further ado, here is my second conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff. Dr. Kristen Neff, thank you so much for making the time to come back for a part two on the Crap It A Happy podcast. Oh, sure. Can't we talk more about fierce self-compassion? It's my favorite topic these days. <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. And I do want to say a special thank you because I know that it is the evening time where you are and you have made a special effort to come on late at night when the rest of us are winding down for the night. So I'm so grateful. So we will not take up a lot of your time today, but I do really want to get onto this topic of fierce self-compassion, which of course is the title of your latest book. The first thing I did want to say though, just to recap quickly on something you mentioned last week, Kristen, because so many people on this topic of self-compassion say to me, I have no problem being compassionate with other people. I really have a problem being compassionate towards myself. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you said last week was when we see other people suffering, it doesn't trigger our own fight or flight response. Yes. But our own suffering and struggle does. And this is the key difference. So this is a really solid explanation for why other people's compassion, we can be friendly and compassionate and kind and loving because it doesn't trigger the same threat response in us. Yes, and also why sometimes we aren't the most compassionate to those who are nearest and dearest, like our children and our spouses, because oftentimes, you know, it's it threatens us as well. When sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. We feel threatened when they fail, or you know, or something's happening with them. We feel threatened, and so when we feel threatened, we tend to react differently. We tend to respond with this fight or flight as opposed to the the tend and befriend response. Yeah. And if anybody is listening who didn't hear our last conversation, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Um, But I did want to reiterate that because it is such a common 
it is just, I hear, you probably hear it all the time too, no doubt, but that's what I hear from people all of the time. Why can I be compassionate to other people, but not me? So I thought that was really just worth touching on again. But let's talk about fierce self-compassion. So you have been in this self-compassion space for, as we discussed, a couple of decades now, loads of research, loads of um, talking about it, speaking about it, sharing about it. There's programs you can do about self-compassion. Where did this idea of fierce self-compassion come from for you? Well, so uh, in the Buddhist tradition, there is this thing called fierce compassion. It's um, that term is used for compassion, for instance, that rises up to protect against injustice. It's kind of um, a counter to the idea that compassion is always about acceptance or complacency. Actually, not at all, because if compassion is the concern with alleviating suffering, Sometimes we need to be quite fierce, maybe even go to war if we have to, to protect people, right? I mean, you know, how it manifests really just depends on what needs to be done to alleviate suffering. And it struck me that people didn't realize that there's also fierce self-compassion, right? In other words, when people hear the word self-compassion, they just think being gentle, giving yourself a break, going easy on yourself, But in fact, sometimes that's not kind to yourself. Sometimes maybe you need to make a change. Maybe you need to, you know, eat better. Maybe you need to exercise more. Maybe you need to change your job. Maybe you need, maybe someone's crossing your boundaries and you need to protect yourself or someone's treating you unfairly. I mean, for instance, I see the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movements as self-compassion movements, but they're they're fierce self-compassion. They're drawing a line in the sand to say, no, you cannot do this. It's not okay. That's a way of caring for yourself. Uh, And so I I like the term because it does call out the fact that there are two sides of self-compassion. And most people, they think self-compassion is going to make them weak. It's going to make them complacent. It's going to make them, you know, just sit around on their cushion all day. It's not at all the case. So this is why I wanted to highlight this side of compassion. It's really interesting. I like that you mentioned that Buddhist um, approach as well, because I think a lot of people do perceive that that whole notion of acceptance and, and equanimity as being very passive, you know, kind of tolerant of everything. And that's not the case. No, it's not the case, right? We, We can't accept injustice. We need to accept the fact that injustice is occurring, Right. So that's where people get confused. It's acceptance of the present moment. And the present moment is you're crossing my boundary. You know, you're threatening me. You're treating me unfairly. It's not acceptance of that. It's acceptance of the fact that it is occurring. I love that distinction. And our response to that, our response to that is often it's not okay. (laughs) But here's the thing when it's compassion, instead of saying, it's not okay and you're bad. (laughs) Compassion, the heart's open. So it's not okay, but we're all human beings. So as I stand up for myself, I'm not gonna dehumanize you, right? I'm I'm gonna see everyone here as human beings worthy of compassion and kindness and respect at the same time that I draw my line in the sand. And by the way, it's a little tricky to do, (laughs) but that's, that's the goal, that's the intention, to draw a line in the sand Firmly, but with kindness. And that's why I talk in, in the in the book I talk my book of fierce self-compassion. I use the metaphor of yin and yang. So yin is more the gentle, tender energy, and yang is more the fierceful, action-oriented energy. 
And I like yin and yang because people understand it has to be in balance. We need both. And in fact, you know, when they're out of balance, that's kind of a definition of ill health. Yes. And yet here's the kicker. We raise boys to be fierce and not tender. We raise girls to be tender and not fierce. In other words, we bake ill health into gender role socialization by not allowing every person to have both sides of themselves easily accessible and well-developed. So a lot of the book, that's why I wrote the book for a woman. I did write the book for a woman, not because men don't need fierce self-compassion, but just because um, their block is more to the tender self-compassion, whereas for women, the block is more to the fierce self-compassion. So the way you approach it has to be a little different. The, the core elements of self-compassion don't change. The mindfulness, self-kindness, common humanity. But what you're highlighting is a distinction in the intention with which we bring these qualities. Would that be fair to say? Well, it's really how they express, right? So for instance, kindness, when kindness is aimed at feeling, let's say you feel really inadequate or you feel, you know, shame or you feel like, you know, bad about something you've done. Kindness may be very gentle and soothing and loving. You know, it's okay and you're okay just as you are. Really maybe all about tender acceptance. But, um, you know, if, if for instance, you just did something really harmful to yourself or others, you know, you're okay, that's still there, but we don't want to tenderly accept the behavior if it's harmful, or we don't want to tenderly accept a situation if it's harmful. So we always need both. We tenderly accept ourselves, but we might have to fiercely protect against a danger or ourselves if we're, you know, maybe we're addicted or or, we're we're doing something that's really unhealthy. We don't want to accept the behavior. We want to change it, but we change it with encouragement as opposed to harshness and criticism, right? So it's really, so I've got this whole three by four table and how these three components manifest, you know, and I won't go through them all, but basically it can look, it can be the difference between loving connected presence and brave empowered clarity. Mm. Those are both manifestations of, um, of kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness, but they look different depending on what type of suffering they're trying to alleviate. Yeah. Okay. And um, no, I think that's really important. And I and I loved your table, by the way. I've I've got the book, and I I really appreciated those. <laughs> You're, that's the true sign of a nerd. The nerds <laughs> love the table. <laughs> you must be a nerd at heart. <laughs> it makes it so clear the how yeah. how these different qualities present in a different situation. Yeah. And I go, oh, I get that. Yeah, I can get that. I can get on board with that. The other thing, I guess, is that you we talked last week and you mentioned about self-care, self-compassion and self-care, almost being like a loving parent to ourselves. And no, well, you have to eat your vegetables because that's good for you. And you have to do your, ex- you know, it's not letting yourself off the hook. And I love that you, you right. bring in that with this fear, self-compassion, it's, you know, something all of us mothers can relate to. It's that mama bear, that very fiercely protective yes. instinct. So when we're standing up for ourselves, it's that kind of fierceness. Exactly. We feel naturally for our children. We just also have to give ourselves permission to use it with ourselves and also toward others who might be, again, crossing our boundaries or treating us unfairly. So this is the action-oriented side of self-compassion. The fear side is where the power comes from. This is what helps us to speak up, right? To say something or to do something. 
which we need at the same time that we have the tender acceptances. It's both, always. This is obviously not a new thing, right? You've you've been in this space for a long time. And so was it, you mentioned before the Me Too and Black Lives Matter, was it those kinds of really big social movements that really prompted you to write this book at this time? Well, certainly the Me Too movement prompted me to write this book right now for a woman. And just in, in general, I mean, there's a bit, been a big, you might say, um, a movement in contemplative practice, people who do mindfulness and compassion, to say, you know, it's not enough for personal well-being. It's not enough for us to sit on our cushion and be happy. There's a lot of injustice in the world and we need to take action, social action, to try to alleviate suffering. And fierce compassion is one of the ways that's dealt with. So that was in the background. But but for me personally, like the real spur to it was I had um, a really horrible situation that I write about in my book with someone who I trusted and supported and you know, um, really tried to, to help. I gave my credentials. I really supported the organization who turned out to be a sex predator, mm-hmm. to put it bluntly, um, was was kind of a harassing woman, abusing woman. And it was what, while I was picking that apart and trying, trying to like shut him down and just going through the, the trauma of it all, that I realized that one of the things that, I mean, of course, the, the, the blame was 100% on the perpetrator, of course. But on the other hand, what, what are some of the things that allowed it to go on for so long with no one saying anything? And you can ask the same about Harvey Weinstein or Andrew Cuomo or any of these people. It's because gender role socialization comes into play. Women are taught we shouldn't speak up. You know, that's just the way men are, um, that we should kind of sweep it under the rug. And also, especially, especially when it's someone like this person ran an autism center or Harvey Weinstein, he was a brilliant director, or Andrew Cuomo was a great governor. When people are doing good in the world, women are like, oh, well, if I say something, gosh, I don't want to harm anyone. You know, we're so socialized to be tender. And sometimes we're cut off from our own anger. Mm. And even after it unfolded, some of the women who were affected, like it took them a while to get angry. They had a hard time getting in touch with their anger. I had had no hard time. I'm very in touch with my young fierceness. But a lot of people did. And I realized that one of the socialization practices that developed to keep us in our place, which is subordinate, basically, is by repressing our fear side repressing our anger. You know, the glass ceiling, one of the reasons the glass ceiling still exists is people don't like powerful, competent women. They actually, there's studies that show if you describe two people, one named Mary, one named James, and they're both powerful and competent, they love James, but they don't like Mary. I know. You know, and that's, that's a problem. And so this is, this really, I was kind of spurred to write this book for my sisters just to say, hey, we can't go along with this anymore. If we want changes in the world, and boy, the world needs some change, we're going to have to fully embrace our fierce mama bear side and stop apologizing for it. Yeah. And yes, there may be some people that like us a little bit less. Oh, well, you know, either that or are we just going to keep with the status quo? The, the status quo isn't working for us anymore, clearly. Yeah, that's key, isn't it? There may be some people, <laughs> there may be some people who are going to like us a little bit less. And you know what? That's okay. 
because we're so conditioned. We can like ourselves. Yeah, we can like ourselves. We have that self-compassion and just recognizing that conditioning that we all have just ingrained in us, that being liked and being to be nice, it's the most important thing. And, And by the way, we do need to, you know, we obviously want to get along with people and we don't want to be mean and we don't want to be rude. And I probably sometimes fall off the other side. I'm like really direct. And, you know, sometimes I need to soften it a little bit. It's funny because this balance, women are socialized not to be fierce, but as individuals like me, I need a little help on the tender side sometimes, especially if I'm really passionate about something. But nonetheless, yeah, for whatever reason, I didn't get that socialization message, maybe because my mother, she's quite fierce. I didn't get that message that to be worthy, I had to be nice and sweet and accommodating. But a lot of women have, and I do think it's the reason that's been in play is to help keep us in our place. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a political book as well as a psychology book. It's for me they're they're really mixed. That's my favorite kind of book. <laughs> I really I'm here for it. I am here for it. But also I wanted to to touch on the reason also I think this is so important is because it's not just about being liked. There is a real fear if you belong to a group that has been oppressed abused, violated. It's scary to to speak up and to set boundaries and to push back. And so how does that fear self-compassion help us to manage that very real yeah. sort of anxiety? Right. And, and by the way, it's not that we have not that we can ignore that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have enough if you don't have power or you're marginalized or you're in a tenuous position, sometimes you can't speak up the way you would like to. And one thing the research shows helps is that if you combine the fierceness with the tenderness, like maybe you do speak up, but then combine it with something like kind of more traditionally kind and nurturing, then it kind of helps people feel more comfortable. So that's one way we can do it. But a lot of what, so anger, for instance, I write a lot about anger in my book. One of the useful functions of anger is it suppresses the fear response. Right. So in a way, one of the reasons sometimes we're too fearful to speak up is because we aren't angry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and if we allow ourselves to get angry, one of the things it does is it does repress the fear response. Now, again, you know, this is all complicated and we don't want to like yell at people and we don't want to be mean and all those things. Yes, yes, yes. But yet the basic energies of fierceness and tenderness, we need to be able to welcome them and honor them and not be so frightened of them and see that it can be harnessed for the good. And that's what I try to help people do in in my book, is how to welcome your anger, how to welcome your fierceness, and really importantly, how to harness it for good for yourself and others. I think that's the key, isn't it? I think when you can bring people around to this this idea that there's nothing necessarily selfish about this, because I think this is the other big fear of women particularly, oh, I'm just being selfish and I should be thinking of other people. And, you know, that's that distinction too between kind of being assertive and being aggressive, isn't it? It's not like I'm trying to overpower somebody. I'm just trying to hold my own, you know, in equal value with somebody else's position. Yeah, yeah. It's not dominating people. In, in fact, so I've, I have some research that shows that self-compassionate people, when their needs conflict with those of others, they don't subordinate, but they don't like say my way or the highway either. They really try to compromise and make sure everyone's needs are met. Yeah. And that's really what we're aiming for is balance. 
I hope that you're enjoying this conversation and realizing the benefits of positivity in your own life. If you are enjoying the show, please be sure to like and subscribe so that you get notified when new apps drop and head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review. For anybody listening, kind of, I guess, what are the kinds of scenarios or situations that really call for this more fierce approach to self-compassion? I mean, I think you've outlined a lot in your book. Can you just kind of give us some ideas? Yeah, well, certainly anytime. So so there's three different forms of fierce self-compassion. One is aimed at protection. So really being aware is anyone, is someone crossing your boundaries in an inappropriate way? You know, that could be like a sexual innuendo or, or worse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or can maybe you have relatives who's pushing their political views on you. You know, being able to say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear it. You know, I don't want to hear it. Thank you very much. I don't want to hear it, right? But firmly, like drawing the line in the sand. So that might be one place that comes in. Um, also providing for yourself, especially for women we, oh, we're taught to say yes. People don't like us when we say no. People value us for being self-sacrificing. So being able to say, you know, I'd love to help, but I can't. I'm sorry. I've got, you know, I have another commitment, right? You know, I just don't have time. Really, but really not feeling guilty about it. Mm. You know, again, yes, we do what we can. It's not, we don't care about other people's needs, but really feeling that we need to honor our own needs. We need to give it time and energy. Otherwise, we're going to be drained and depleted and not be helpful to anyone. So providing for our own needs, saying no when we have to. And then the third one is really motivating change. So when we when we want to make a change, we need sometimes we need that fierce mama bear energy to say, hey, you got to stop this. This isn't good for you. You know, maybe, I don't know, you're a sugar addict or something like that, and you eat so much sugar and it's you know giving you diabetes or harming your health. Yes, we accept ourselves. It doesn't mean that you are any less valuable or lovable or, or you know perfect in terms of your quality of worth as a person, but the behavior is, is harmful. And sometimes you need to kind of stand up and say, hey, this has got to stop. This is harming me, mm. right? And use that fierce energy to motivate a change, just like a mother would. Again, hopefully a mother would. We know that authoritative parenting is most effective, not authoritarian, which is like domineering, but not like indulgent either, which is like, oh yeah, whatever. Authoritative, loving, warm, kind, but firm, clear boundaries. And the same with ourselves. Yeah. I think everybody can kind of relate to that. It's what we all I hope, aspire to as parents. So it really is just yes. turning turning that back and using those same principles with how we relate to ourselves and other people. Yes, exactly. So and the parenting metaphor is such a good one. You know, gentle mother and fierce mama bear. But if you want to use authoritative parenting, you can also use that one. Uh, but self-compassion really is a way of almost reparenting ourselves, mm. especially maybe if our parents didn't treat us the way we would have ideally liked. What it, what it means is we can turn to ourselves to get a lot of our needs met. I mean, not all of them. Of course, we need other people, but it helps us not be so dependent on other people's approval or other people meeting our needs exactly as we want them met. You know, it really gives us resources to meet a lot of our own needs, just like an ideal parent would meet the needs of their child. 
Yeah. It feels like this whole self-compassion thing, it's really, it's it's like the antidote to almost everything. You know, setting boundaries and feeling guilty. <laughs> it's, it's That's like okay. Secret, you can feel guilty. It's a secret sauce. <laughs> it, it is, isn't it? better. It know? is. Like, oh. <laughs> That's why do you think I've devoted my life to it? It's so, I mean, what amazes me is that people don't do it more often mm. because it does. It makes everything better. It helps so much. Um, you know, and it's really not that difficult or complicated Mm. It's about giving ourselves permission. And, and like I say, it's not difficult or complicated, but like I said, it does go against some biological tendencies. So, you know, our tendency is to freak out and to go into fight or flight. So we have to deal with that. But once we realize that, it's actually not that difficult to be kind and supportive to yourself. Feels feels pretty good, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, I think last week, like really just in that moment of being up, it can be as simple as, not easy, but as simple as just catching yourself in that moment yes. and realizing what you're doing to yourself and just yes. pausing and, and choosing something different. Choosing something more supportive. Yeah. When people do really struggle with this and, you know, for different reasons, people, trauma backgrounds, you know, all sorts of things that have gone on in people's lives and they find this especially difficult and uncomfortable. Our default is always to go to self-criticism. Is it possible to shift our default so that we become, it becomes much more natural and easy uh, to to go to self-compassion as almost a first stop? Absolutely. Um, it, it develops with practice, right? Just like any habit, it develops with practice. So yeah, the research shows that if you practice self-compassion, which may look different for different people. Some people, it's just every time they feel badly about themselves, they remember to say what they would say to a good friend instead of criticizing themselves. Other people do meditation. You know, other people do like journaling exercises. Really, it doesn't matter how you practice, our research shows, but it does matter that you practice. And the more you practice, the more habitual it comes. I mean, we know the brain is plastic, right? We can't actually lay down new neuronal pathways. That's the good news. So it can become a habit that persists over time. I think that's a really important and encouraging point to make because another thing that I have heard for, you know, as a psychologist for years is when people get really identified with their habits, that I'm just a warrior or I'm just a this or I, you know, it's like, this is who I am and there's no changing that. And I think it gives people so much hope and encouragement to be able to say, well, no, just because you've had this habit for all of this time doesn't mean that you can't change that just like any other habit. You just need to practice, just like you said. That's right. And so it does become easier, but also the the nice thing about self-compassion is that if your instinct, let's say you do say something mean to yourself, right? And so, so that just comes up again, that old habit, then you can give compassion to that ouch, that hurt. Uh, you know, hey, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? So you, so, so compassion can hold anything. And so you can, you know, you can have compassion for the fact that you have this belief that you can't change, <laughs> right? So you can have compassion for anything, any any painful experience that arises, including the pain of feeling like you're stuck and can't change. And then once you do that, it kind of starts to loosen up that grip and that stuckness when we give compassion to the stuckness. Mm. It, it really is amazingly powerful. It's just a, a, a mind shift toward whatever we're thinking in the moment. And it, it changes things. 
So Kristen, we've talked a little about fierce self-compassion and the way that we can use it to speak up against injustice in whatever context we might find ourselves in. You've mentioned sexual harassment. It could be workplace issues. You know, I've had a lot of women in my audience deal with bias in their workplace. How? What happens when you've done what you can? You've, you've employed all of the fierce self-compassion. You've set the boundaries. You've spoken up. But in the environment around you, nothing changes. And this happens a lot, you know, like you, you can't change the environment or the institution or the, the society that you live in. So what do we do then? Yeah. Well, so first of all, um, you know, it's important to point out that fierce self-compassion is, is an ingredient that people in a system have it, especially those who are being oppressed. But we need to change the systems, right? It can't just be that we change ourselves personally and that's enough. We actually need to try to change systems at the system level. Now, that's very complicated and it's not something that, you know, I have any expertise in how to do, but it's it's very clear that it has to be more than just change at the individual level. It has to be change at the system level. Now, again, I do think that especially some of the anger that's aimed at social injustice can, like, get you to organize, get you to, you know, vote, get you to try to influence the system. But it's really important that we try to change the system and the individ- and ourselves as individuals at the same time. But here's the nice thing <laughs> about self-compassion is that there are limits. We, we can't, you know, we may be motivated to make change, but at the end of the day, change isn't always possible. There may, there may be Sometimes they're what's, at least what seems like insurmountable barriers. And that's where we have the tender self-compassion to fall back on. In other words, we do the best we can. We try our hardest. We, you know, we, we do what we can. We vote, we organize, whatever. We try to speak up for ourselves. But at the end of the day, we have this tender self-compassion of acceptance to help hold the pain of the fact mm that sometimes things are not good. You know, sometimes, you know, not sometimes, injustice does still occur. Yeah. And we need both. In other words, we need to do everything we can to fight against injustice at the same time that we need to accept that this is the way things are in the present moment and give ourselves kindness and support and healing for the pain of that. Because life is imperfect. It's not It's not like you, you sprinkle self-compassion on things and wow, everything becomes perfect. You know, I wish it doesn't quite work that way. It becomes more manageable, but it doesn't become perfect. The pain and, and the um, imperfection and the, and the suffering is, is still there, unfortunately. But that's the, way, that's the way life seems to work. So it is very much, like you say, this integrated approach. It's, it's, it's being able to call on both the, the yin and the yang yes. as, as necessary. Acceptance and change. Yes, as needed, you know, depending on whatever whatever form of suffering you're holding in the moment. And, and you don't want to get too attached to outcome either. So with, with, with all of these things, from, from this perspective, right, we do what we can, but then we have to accept that we, don't, we aren't in control. And we know that for a fact that we aren't in control. And the belief that we are in control causes a lot of suffering. So we do what we can, and we can certainly do more with that fierce mama bear energy, but ultimately we aren't in control. And that's where we need the acceptance, acceptance and change. It's really this paradox is at the heart of really most philosophical systems. I love it. 
I think it's life-changing. It's potentially <laughs> lit- like literally life-changing for people, considering what people are, the struggles that people are experiencing. This can just make such a world of difference to people's experience. Yeah, well, I, th- I found it life-changing personally, So, and a, and a lot of people do. And so it's certainly worth trying. Yeah. You know, for, for people who are a little skeptical, give it a try, see what happens. <laughs> I'm so grateful to you, Kristen, and... Thank you for writing the second book, Fear, Self-Compassion. I'm still halfway through it. I've already got my sticky notes and (laughs) bookmarks all through it. My my table, my four by three table bookmarked. Yes, you like you love the table, yes. (laughs) And in terms of how other people can listening can find out more about you, your work, about self-compassion, how they can start to learn it, cultivate it, apply it, where can they go? Right. So the best place to start is if you Google self-compassion, you'll find my website, selfcompassion.org. I mean, I have a page on there specifically for fierce self-compassion and I have lots of practices. So it's not just an idea. There are practices, exercises you can do to build these fierce self-compassion muscles. And I also have a lot of, um, a lot of other practices as well. So that's really the best place to start. And then also you'll see a link to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion on my page. That's really the training arm of what I do. And you can sign up for training. You can sign up for workshops. Um, There's a lot online these days. So you actually can practice it through the guidance of skilled teachers. And I teach some workshops there myself as well. So Yay. (laughs) <laughs> and so for somebody like me, Kristen, so as a psychologist, I have psychologists also um, listening to the podcast and also just clearly the general public. For somebody like me who wants to use more self-compassion in my my practice with clients, do you have training for therapists and coaches? We, we do. We have a self-compassion and psychotherapy training program that's specifically designed for therapists who want to bring self-compassion into their work, you know, regardless of what therapy modality they use. Um, We also have a book called Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program that has chapters on there for therapists, people who want to um, know the pedagogy of how to teach self-compassion to others. Amazing. So you can also find a link to that on my website. Thank you so much. And so we've got all the bases covered. You do, you do. (laughs) I'm there. Thank you so much um, for your time again. And thank you for the work that you do. I'm a fan and I appreciate you so much. Oh, thanks, Cass. It's really been lovely. Thanks for having me on again. Kristen's book, Fierce Self-Compassion, is now available in all bookstores, as well as her original book, just called Self-Compassion. You can find out all about her work at her website, www.self-compassion.org. For more information about me, my website is castdun.com. Connect with me on Instagram, castdun underscore XO, or Facebook, castdun.xo. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please do share it with your friends. Take a moment to give us a five-star rating or a review so that it can be heard by more listeners, because I think we can all agree that right now what the world needs is a little less crappy and more happy. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you on the next episode of Crappy to Happy. Listener.